The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life. This life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved, through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study this morning, we need to make sure we're in fellowship, so we always have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary, to simply admit or acknowledge your sins to God and the privacy of your priesthood, and then instantly God forgives and forgets that sin. And we are restored to fellowship, and we can continue to walk by means of the Holy Spirit. So let's begin with a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Father, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. It is in the light of your word that we see light. It is the truth of your word that gives us the information we need in order to come to know you. It is your word that gives us all that we need to know in order to live the unique spiritual life that you have given to us. And it is your word and your word alone that is the final authority in our lives. Father, we pray now that as we study your word and submit ourselves to its teaching, we pray that you would help us to understand these things, that we might be challenged by them, that God the Holy Spirit would use them in our spiritual advance, our spiritual growth. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Last Sunday when uh, we finished up with our study in 1 John 4, As we closed in prayer, I scooted out the back door while Jim was leading the closing hymn, and I had to make it to uh, Hartford in time to catch a plane as I flew down to to Fort Worth for uh, the Conservative Theological Society meeting. I had to give a paper on Monday. I thought it was going to be Monday morning, but it turned out it was Monday evening. Nevertheless, it was one of the more unusual plane rides that I've ever had. Too bad Ken, where's Ken? Ken's going to miss the good story. You know, sometimes we're in places to give the gospel to somebody. Sometimes we're in places just so they don't get to hear the error. I got on this plane, and I never get a middle seat. I hate getting a middle seat, and very rarely do I get one. But I got one 
heading out of Hartford, and I was I thought, oh, I'm going to be crammed in here between a couple of people, and I've got to work. I still had to put together my PowerPoint presentation for the for the uh, paper I was going to give on Monday, and I didn't want to just be crammed in there like this with some guy in the front leaning all the way back and nothing to do, which is typical. Whenever I really need to work, that happens because, after all, we're in the angelic conflict. Well, Satan had a different twist this time, one that was much more entertaining and showed a little more creativity. As I sat there waiting to see who my fellow passengers would be, some young guy came in and he sat down next to me and he was just out of college and seemed, you know, he had his computer and he was going to do some work. And then a rather heavy guy came in, a guy middle age, 55, 60, came in and he plops his reading material down on the chair next to me. So as I glanced down, I caught the phrase, New World Translation. I thought, oh boy, I got a Jehovah's Witness sitting next to me, and they're going to be, he's going to be Mr. Chatty Cathy. And he's going to want to get to know me so he can proselytize me. See, there's a difference between proselytizing and witnessing. If you're a believer, you're witnessing. If you're a cultic heretic, you're a proselytizer. So, he sat down, and he first thing he does is introduce himself, and and uh, so he forced me to introduce myself, and then then he says, "Well, Robbie, what do you do?" And I said, "I am a pastor, and also I teach Greek." I figured that was going to put the wall up, and I wasn't going to hear anything more from him. Well, he wanted to talk about this thing and that thing and the other thing, and the and he also wanted to talk to the guy next to me. Now, by this time, we've taken off; we're in the air. And I have got my computer open in front of me, and I'm working. And he wants to have a conversation with the guy on my left right across from me. So I've discovered that the number one thing you have to have to be a Jehovah's Witness is to be rude and have no concept of manners. And, of course, they must train them that way because that's what they do when they come and they knock on your door. By the way, do you know what you get when you cross a Jehovah's Witness when you cross a Jehovah's Witness with somebody in the, unit, in, in the Unity Church, you know, somebody knocks on your door and they don't have anything to say. <laughs> anyway, so this guy's just talking about football and baseball and everything under the world, building his opportunity to just nail this guy. And I'm sort of listening out of one ear as I'm trying to concentrate on my, of course, you would know what I'm right, I'm working on my paper on, why a Christian can't be demon-possessed. And, <laughs> and so I'm sitting there listening to his strategy out of one ear, and all of a sudden, this guy, I don't know how he went from point A into, into you know, the government gets us into all kinds of wars, and if you don't know this, Jehovah's Witness have a doctrine of pacifism. They don't believe in any kind of military conflict. And... Earlier, after I had introduced myself as a pastor, I had said to him, I said, you know, there are a lot of things that we could talk about that we're not going to agree on, so let's just not talk about those things because I don't want to argue with you all the way to Chicago because I have a lot of work to do. Of course, he doesn't care about anybody. So he's just going after this other guy, and he gets into pacifism. And you know the government gets us into wars, and they're all unjust. And I went, whoa, wait a minute. And, of course, every other sentence he would say something, and I would contradict him. And then I would, after I contradicted him, I would say, now listen, we've already talked about this. 
I'm not going to let you, if you were sitting here talking to this guy, I wouldn't say a word, but if you're going to talk across me when I'm trying to be work and trying to work and not have good manners, then I'm not going to let you come up with your lies and your heresies. If these aren't lies and heresies, I said, Arianism is exactly what your, what Jehovah's Witnesses believe in. It was condemned as a heresy at the Council of Nicaea in 325 A.D. It was re-condemned again in and I just went through the whole litany all the way up to the Council of Constantinople. And this guy's well-trained, you know. He knew the proper responses. Well, the Council of Nicaea was, you know, that was condemned by a pagan heretic, you know, Caesar, Constantine. I said, well, that may be true, but you have to realize that that he just wanted peace in his empire. The real issue was between Athanasius. Well, Athanasius was a heretic. I said, no, he wasn't. Athanasius wasn't a heretic, and Athanasius wasn't ungodly, and you know. So I went on, and, and finally, after five times telling the guy that he needed to just—I mean, I had to be in his face. You will. Fortunately, we're riding the wing, so we got all this engine noise and vibration, and this this poor young guy who doesn't know up from down and anything. He can't. When I'm talking this way, he can't hear me. Because that, and, and I realized afterwards, sometimes the Lord puts us in places simply to keep somebody from hearing error as opposed to giving them the truth. So I was kind of shut down in terms of being able to witness to the guy, but at least I kept a, a Jehovah's Witness Aryan heretic off of his back. And yes, I actually said all those words to him. Yes, I did. Yes, I did. I was not going to put up with that. You're not going to te- you're not going to try to proselytize somebody into heresy across my face. You know, I will be nice and I will be polite, but I will call call things what they are. So anyhow, that was just one interesting experience. See, I never have anybody talk to me on an airplane. People get on the tell you all the time about the witnessing experiences. A person who sat down and they're reading some book on how to how to find the spiritual life or something, get him to conference. That never happens to me. Nobody ever talks to me. It's like they know something. They're going to hear something. Nobody ever talks to me. And then I got on the second plane, and the girl who's sitting next to me, as soon as I sat down, she goes, Hi, my name's Sally, and I never, I don't like to travel with strangers, so who are you? So... <laughs> I'm thinking, gee, I'm really going to be stuck on this flight, and I'm not going to get any work done whatsoever. But uh, that was really kind of fun because as the conversation progressed, she was from Fort Worth. She said, where are you from? And I said, well, I'm from Texas, but I live in Connecticut. She said, where in Texas? I said, Houston. She said, oh, my in-laws live near Houston. Really? She said, yeah, they're in Lamarck. And I'm going, oh, no. Say, well, I'm a pastor and my first church was in Lamarck. Oh, really? What church was that? Paul's Union Church. Oh, really? That's the church my husband grew up in. Who's your husband? Well, he was in college when I was a pastor there and his parents were some of my best friends, so this was like old home week. I mean, it can be a really small world sometimes, but fortunately she had her Ten-year-old uh, daughter with her, and that captured most of her attention. And I did get my work done, <laughs> but that was just kind of one of those more interesting trips. Well, with that for our introduction, let's open our Bibles to First John, First John chapter four. It's ne- never, never a dull moment. 
Now, in 1 John chapter 4, the subject is love, and that was the last thing I discussed as we, as I, before I left last Sunday, and yes, it was the loving thing to do to keep that Jehovah's Witness Aryan heretic off that poor Roman Catholic's back, keep him from getting sucked in on all that stuff. These guys are so well trained now. I mean, this guy knew every Every little nuance, I would say one thing, and he had a counter to everything. So uh, it's fascinating how they train themselves. But see, love doesn't mean just being sweet and kind and letting people get away with all of their uh, falsehoods and lies and everything else. You have to exercise some uh, good manners, and you have to be polite, and you don't... Um, you don't yell or scream, but sometimes you have to be firm and you have to be definite about what you're doing, and that's what biblical love is all about, and that's John's subject. In this section, John is really describing and developing his commentary on what Jesus said in the Upper Room Discourse in John 13, 34, and 35. And there Jesus said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, that is, by that love for one another, that function of love for one another in the body of Christ, by this, all men, that would include unbelievers, all men will know that you are my disciples. Not that you're believers, but disciples. See, it's important to note that distinction that Jesus is talking about someone who is learning and advancing and studying the Word. Someone who is growing uh, as a, toward maturity as a believer. How will they know it? By this love. This love is a unique love that is produced by God the Holy Spirit as we have studied. And it's not something that automatically happens. You don't just start off loving one another. And most Christians don't even have a clue what that involves. And as we studied last time, the model for this love is always the cross. John states this in, in 1 John chapter 3, verse, verse 16. By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us. It is what happens at the cross that tells us what love is. So any discussion of love, whenever you think about love, next time you turn to your husband or your wife or your kids or your parents, or whomever, and you say the words, I love you, I want you to think that for that sentence to have any meaning in my life as a believer, I need to think about that in relationship to what Jesus Christ did on the cross. Because as a believer, if that's not your starting point for understanding the meaning of love, then you're just voicing words. You're just flapping your gums. You're just making empty statements. Love is not having warm, fuzzy feelings towards somebody. Love is not being sentimental. Love is not uh, an emotion, as this is expressed here in the Scriptures. It has to do with a mental attitude. You see, emotion, emotions are you fluctuate. The, our emotions are sometimes just related to how tired we are or how well-rested we are. If we don't get a lot of sleep or if we have a bad night, we toss and turn. We have bats flying around in our house like we did last night. You know, it's all kinds of fun things are going on. Uh, whatever happens, if you don't get enough sleep, then you can wake up feeling down. You can wake up feeling tired. You can wake up uh, grumpy and cantankerous. And you don't feel a lot like love. And then the next day you get a full, uh, full quota of six hours of sleep. 
And now you're able to uh, look at life a little happier than you do at other times. So your emotions fluctuate, but this is the kind of love that is based on a stable mental attitude that is stabilized by doctrine. It's not emotion or sentimentality. It's not some superficial demonstration of friendliness like shaking somebody's hand or turning around to the person behind you in church and giving them a hug and telling them you love them or anything like that that usually passes for love in Christian circles. It is something much more profound that only grows and deepens and matures as we take time to understand fully what took place on the cross. It is only when we understand the suffering, only when we understand everything that was involved when Jesus Christ, who knew no sin, was made sin for us, the the incredible uh, suffering and pain and torment that he went through spiritually as our sins were imputed to him on the cross. As he anticipated that, the night before he went to the cross, Jesus prayed to the Father, if you can't let this cup pass from me. He did not want to go. There was something about that 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 in his humanity was, was I don't want to use the term frightful because that would imply sin, but it was something that was so serious and so incredible that in his humanity he did not want to to willingly embrace. Nevertheless, he did, and he was made sin for us. And in all of that is a demonstration of what love is. So it is something that we develop in our understanding of, something that we we uh, we grow we as we come to know God. And that's why John connects these things together. We see this back in in verses seven to eleven, uh, verse eight. John says, he who does not love does not know God. You have to know God to love. So there has to be that spiritual advance. And this is not just an academic knowledge, but this is a full knowledge. For example, in in 1 Corinthians 8.1, Paul warns that knowledge makes arrogant, but the knowledge there is an academic knowledge, gnosis, not the full knowledge epinosis produced by God the Holy Spirit. And now we come to verse 12. And I want you to notice some things. I want you to look at verses 12 through 17 in your Bibles. And if you've got, you know, one of the wonderful things you can do is to get some sort of a colored pencil, colored pencils to uh, highlight things in your Bibles. And one of the things I had for a while, I still have two. I, they're hard to find, but I think Pentel makes these uh, colored pencils where they have eight, six or eight colored um, leads in them, and you can just kind of rotate to emphasize different colors. And that's a great thing to use to emphasize different things in your Bible. But if you look at verse 12, and we, I'm going to read through 12 through 17, I want you to do something like this. Circle the word love or underline the word love, and then put a square or circle around the word abide so that you're emphasizing those two different words and seeing how they go through the passage. Verse 12, no one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us. So loving one another is related to God abiding in us. And his love has been perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. 
And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God abides in Him and He in God. And we have known and believed the love God, that God has for us. God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God, and God in him. Now notice that you have God, you have, you have, you have love mentioned once in verse 12, or twice in verse 12, and abide once. Then we have abide mentioned once in verse 13, but actually it's there twice. When John says, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us, he's left the verb out in the second clause. He's, he's really saying, I mean, for emphasis, that's called ellipsis. And he's saying, by this we know that we abide in him and he abides in us. He's just left the verb out because he's uh, talking quickly, because, or writing in, in a hurried manner. And we have seen, and then in verse 15, we have God abides in him and he abides in God. So again, it's really there twice. It's understood the second time and actually there only one time. And then when we get to verse 16, the two themes of love and abide are brought back together. And we have love there uh, three times. And we have abide there twice. Actually, a third time because it's ellipsized the last time. So, so you see, it's just to illustrate how I keep saying the way John writes is he picks up one theme, lays it down like he's weaving a rope. He lays that down and he talks about that for a verse or two, and then he picks up another theme and lays that over, and then he winds them together. Then he brings in a third theme, and the third theme that runs through this is that word. And I'm reading from the. Um, New King James Version, but I think it's the same in the NASB, is the word perfected. And you have it in verse 12 and again in verse 17. Notice in verse 12, John says, If we love one another and God abides in us and his, and his love has been perfected in us. Now that word perfected is a word that I constantly refer to. It's a crucial word in the, in the uh, New Testament and it's the word teleao. T-E-L-E-I-O-O. T-E-L-E-I-O-O. Second O is a long O. Teleao. And it has to do not so much with perfection in the sense of flawlessness or that which is impeccable, but it has to do with bringing something to completion or to maturity. So I like the word maturity here as a better translation. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love has been perfect tense, something in the past, and we're focusing on that present reality. God abiding in us means that his love has been brought to maturity in us. And then he comes back to that concept, that idea of completion or maturity in verse 17. Love has been matured among us in this that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. Well, what's the day of judgment? That's the judgment seat of Christ. And the theme of this whole section is how the believer can have confidence of the judgment seat of Christ, 1 John 2.28, and not be ashamed at the judgment seat of Christ. And the key is maturing in love. That is, love standing for the adult spiritual life or reaching uh, maturity in the spiritual life. Now, I have said all of that in order to give you just an overview, sort of a bird's-eye view of this passage, 
and where John is going here because it's so important to, to not lose the forest for the trees. In verse 12, John says, No one has beheld God at any time. So in the first point, he is simply referring to the fact that no one has ever seen God the Father. And the old, we've studied this many, many times. In the Old Testament, all of the appearances of God were appearances of the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ did not come into existence at the virgin birth. Jesus Christ in his deity has existed for all eternity. Now that's the difference between biblical orthodoxy and Jehovah's Witness Arian heresy, in case you don't know that. Uh, in the Jehovah's Witness view, they pick up a, a very an ancient heresy called Arianism, and that's named after uh, a man who was a presbyter in the Alexandrian church in Egypt by the name of Arius. And Arius taught that, let's put a timeline up here, from eternity to eternity, the biblical orthodox view is that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are eternal, without end, no beginning and no end. They're equally eternal, equally infinite, and uh, equal in all of their attributes. Now, at some point in time, God creates the angels, and very closely thereafter, I believe, he created the universe. What Arian, Arius taught is that there was a time when Christ was not. It's a simple phrase. There was a time when Christ was not. So he has a beginning of Christ at some time in eternity past, and then he is everlasting. He's not created in time. He's created before time, but that creation is sometime in eternity past. So at some point, there was just the Father. There was no Son and no Holy Spirit. So he is not fully equal to God. He is a second-class deity. He is a God, but not the God. And that's how they want to translate uh, John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And they completely distort the the uh, significance in the Greek of the absence of an article. In English, in order to make it the God, you have to put the article there. But even in English, we know that God is inherently definite. You don't have to put the in front of it to make it a definite noun. The same is true in, in, in Greek. As a matter of fact, when you leave the article off in Greek, you're often emphasizing the quality or the essence of the noun. So when John says the word was God and he left the article out, what he's saying is the word has all of the quality and essence as God. He couldn't say the word was deity in any stronger way. The, the absence of the article means just the opposite of what the Jehovah's Witnesses uh, want to assert. So what we have here is in Arianism and Jehovah's Witnesses is Christ really is a creature. He is less than God. Now his opponent at the Council of, of or his opponent in the ancient world who became his opponent at the Council of Nicaea is Athanasius. And Athanasius was the uh, teacher down in Alexandria, and he clearly taught that Jesus has to be full, undiminished deity in order to be able to have 
a death, a substitutionary death on the cross that has unlimited or infinite value because he is God. Now, in his humanity, he died, and his humanity was the, the substitutionary spiritual death is what paid the penalty for our sins. But Athanasius argued that that in, in his deity, that gave whatever he did in his humanity unlimited infinite value, and from that he argued that Christ had to be fully God. He could not be uh, some any kind of second-class creature or second-class uh, deity. So that gives us a little little history lesson and perspective here, which sort of fits into the background of our, the, the subject matter in this particular in this particular section. So John begins by saying that no one has beheld God at any time. The only one that has beheld God is the Lord Jesus Christ. And in John chapter 1, verse 14, we're told no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God, that is the unique Son of God, he has explained him. So John goes back to that, picks up that principle, and that sort of uh, precept number one or proposition number one, he says no one has seen God at any time. No one has seen him and no one has looked upon him. And this is the perfect middle indicative of the verb thaomai, and thaomai means to see, to witness, to look intently upon, to perceive. It's used again in verse 14, so you see how this vocabulary intertwines through this section. So when when you read in verse 12, no one has seen God, and then in verse 14 say, we have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son. How did they know the Father? Remember, Jesus told Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. They knew the Father because they they saw Jesus. So John's point is no one has seen God at any time. So how do we know God? If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. So he's going to lay down, start laying down his argument for the advanced spiritual life being exemplified in love for one another. No one's beheld God at any time. What he's going to say is if you want to see God, you see it when believers are loving one another. That's when you see the character of Christ. But he starts off by saying, first of all, in the third class condition, if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is matured in us. So first of all, we have to understand the nature of the condition. It is a third-class condition, which means if, and maybe you will, and maybe you won't. Sometimes we love one another, sometimes we don't, and so he is going to, to uh, have a supposition here that if, assuming you, you will, but you, prob- you, but you may not, but assuming you will, but you may not, we love one another, under that condition, God abides in us. Now, the key word here in this section is this word, abide. It is the Greek word, meno, which we've studied many times. And meno means to abide, to dwell, to remain, and to stay. Meno is spelled just simply M-E-N-O. Now, meno is used 24 times in 1 John. In these five short chapters, we have the use of meno, or abide, 24 times. That tells us it is a crucial word. It is used six times between verses 12 and verse 16. 
that tells us it's a key concept here. It is uh, the hermeneutical crux. Now, this word is a word that has generated a tremendous amount of theological debate. There are those who argue that meno really means or is very similar to believe. It is almost synonymous with believe. And they say that all, let's get the key word in here, all genuine believers, all true believers, abide. And if you get this uh, new English translation that's available off the Internet, where the translation the New Testament is done, by uh, mostly the faculty, New Testament faculty at Dallas Seminary, the note on abide in 1 John 2 says that, well, this doesn't mean, uh, th- this doesn't mean, doesn't refer to some kind of higher fellowship enjoyed by some unique or elite class of believers. All genuine believers abide. See, they're completely wrong. Completely disagree with that position because what they're saying is that if you're a true believer, you're always abiding. Whereas we we have taken the position that abide has to do with remaining in fellowship or continuing to have fellowship with Christ. And when we sin, we stop abiding. So we take it to mean fellowship, for example, just to give you a little reductio ad absurdum argument. That's a technical, logical term. Jesus says, if you abide in me and I in you. Well, if abide is, is, is a synonymous with believe, then you could do a simple word substitution. Why would Jesus say, if you believe in me and I believe in you? Jesus is not about believing in us. Furthermore, let's take this verse. Let's do a little word substitution in verse 12. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God believes in us. See, that doesn't make any sense. But nevertheless, you, what's at stake here is, is, really lordship salvation and their whole view of the what's called the, the perseverance of the saints, which in the acronym TULIP is the P, and this describes Calvinism. The T, we'll cover this in a minute when we get there, the T is for total depravity, the U is for unconditional election, the L is for limited atonement, and the I is for irresistible grace, and the P is for perseverance of the saints, which means that if you are truly saved, you will persevere in good works until you die. And if you haven't persevered in good works, you weren't really saved. That's what the P stands for. And in order to keep their theology going, you have to remember that Calvinism basically calcified uh, after the death of Calvin. It became petrified, you might say, hardened in its theology. There was no more development, no further understanding. And uh, actually, this wasn't Calvin's position. This was the position of later Calvinists. And I think to some degree they had uh, uh, departed from Calvin's original theology. But that's another uh, Bible class and another story. Here, meno means fellowship. You You either abide... Or you abide not. We're either in fellowship or out of fellowship, walking by the Spirit or not walking by the fellowship, walking by the Spirit. So four points on abiding. Point number one, abiding is a technical term in John for the believer who is having fellowship with God, walking by the Spirit and walking in the light. 
It's a technical term for the believer who is having fellowship with God, walking by the Spirit and walking in the light. Secondly, only the believer who abides in Christ can advance and mature. When you're not abiding, you can't advance, you can't mature. When you're not abiding in Christ, you're out of fellowship, you're being controlled by the sin nature. Third, as we abide in him, not only does he abide in us, but his word abides in us and God abides in us. So the third point, abiding is mutual. Abiding is mutual. The more we abide in him, the more he abides in us. The more we abide in him, his word abides in us. Point number four, not all believers abide. Those who don't abide will suffer divine discipline in time and loss of rewards and shame at the judgment seat of Christ. So if abide is a term for fellowship and for someone who is spending time staying in fellowship and growing in spiritual maturity, then we, what we read here is that if we love one another, God abides in us. In other words, we can't love one another unless God's abiding in us. And God won't abide in us unless we're abiding in Christ. And we're not going to be abiding in Christ unless we're staying in fellowship. We have to string all that together. So the key is we stay in fellowship, we abide in Christ, and then God in turn abides in us, and he is producing something in us, and that is his character as exemplified by the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness. And, of course, the first one that he is that the Holy Spirit is producing in us is love. So to love one another it doesn't come automatically. It comes as a result of walking by means of God the Holy Spirit. So that means that in order to love one another, we have some preconditions. You have to be learning doctrine. You have to be using 1 John 1, 9 to not only uh, recover fellowship, but then you have to be applying doctrine while you're in fellowship and not sinning, because when you sin, you're out of fellowship. Now, that doesn't mean you're, you, you have to be perfect, because we're all going to sin, but as soon as we sin, we need to confess our sins and get back in fellowship again. We have to stay in fellowship. So part of loving one another is learning doctrine and growing to spiritual maturity. But remember, we are to love one another. And that one another brings into into focus the aspect of the mutual ministry of believers to one another in the body of Christ. This usually functions under the category of spiritual gifts. Remember, spiritual gifts come in two categories. There are temporary spiritual gifts, and there are permanent spiritual gifts. Temporary spiritual gifts and permanent. Now, we can further subdivide temporary spiritual gifts into uh, those that were revelatory, that is, they involved the giving of revelation, such as prophecy, knowledge, and wisdom. And those that functioned as signs, that is, they authenticated the ministry of the apostles. Uh, sign gifts would include miracles and healing 
And then tongues was also a sign gift because it was assigned to Israel according to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, 20 and 21. And Paul quotes from Isaiah uh, chapter 20, 28 indicating that when they when the Jews heard Gentile languages in Jerusalem, that was a sign of the coming of the fifth cycle of discipline. So these are the temporary spiritual gifts, and they all ceased by the end of the first century. Temporary gifts included apostle, prophet, tongues, healing, miracles, wisdom, and knowledge. Now, the permanent spiritual gifts, that is, the spiritual gifts that continue through the church age, include the gift of pastor-teacher, the gift of evangelist, the gift of service, that is, just serving or helping one another, the gift of giving, and that would include in every category giving of our time, giving of our uh, finances, giving of our own particular energy and efforts, uh, exercise exhortation or encouraging one another with the application of the Word of God. Uh, there's a gift of leadership, leading. There's a gift of administration. This is a gift that uh, often is demonstrated by deacons. A gift of mercy and helps all of these are still operational today. Now, as I said in the first hour when we just touched on uh, on spiritual gifts, these are also, or most of these are required by every believer. If you're a parent, you're required to demonstrate leadership at some level. However, there are other believers who have the gift of leadership. If you are, you know, in the family, if you're in uh, working in a local church, a small local church, you may be involved in some kind of administration. It may not be your gift, but you're still required to do it. Every believer is required to give, to serve, to witness, uh, to teach one another, yet there are specific individuals that are especially gifted in those areas, and they are going to have a tremendous benefit to one another in the body of Christ. So that's the function of the spiritual gifts. And as we grow in advance, we use those spiritual gifts for the benefit of one another. Now, John says, no one has seen God the Father at any time, but if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is matured in us. Love is not automatic in the spiritual life. It doesn't just happen. We have to go through the process. We've studied the dynamics in the past. We stay in fellowship. We study the Word. As we study the Word and apply the Word, then God the Holy Spirit uses that to produce spiritual growth. And the last, the last clause, his love is matured in us, is a perfect passive participle, and the perfect tense indicates that it, you're emphasizing the present results of a past action. So... For the mature believer, at, let's say, X point in time, we see God in him. We see him demonstrate God's character, and at that point he is uh, following the command of loving one another. And this is the result of something that has happened in the past. See, it's emphasizing the present results of a past action, and that past action is completion of love, completion or maturity. So when, once you hit that maturity level, 
then after that you demonstrate this kind of love. Now we come to verse 13. This is where we start getting into what I consider some fun exegetical uh, insights. By this we know. Now we've studied that phrase. When we see it in John, if it's followed by a dependent clause. Now dependent clause means that the, 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 the rest of the sentence can either hang on its own or not. If it can't hang on its own, it's dependent. That we abide in him and he in us. See, that's not a, that, that can't hang on its own. That's not in, an independent complete sentence. It is dependent. So if the by this we know is followed by an explanation, you know, like with a word like that or because or by a dependent clause, then the this refers to what follows. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. So we know that we abide in him and he in us has something to do with the Spirit, but that's a bad translation here, and this is where it starts getting a little fun. How do we know that we've reached this level of maturity where we are, we can be said to abide? Now, there are moments and times as an immature believer when you're abiding, and there are times when you're not abiding. But when you reach maturity, you're spending more time in fellowship than out of fellowship, and you can therefore be said to abide in Christ uh, in a more full sense. By this we know that we abide in him, and he abides in us. See, that second phrase there, he in us, leaves out the verb, but that's what's understood there. He's abiding in us because he has given us of his spirit. Now, I started to look at this phrase this morning, and I realized that it's not saying this at all, because he has given us of his spirit. And this is where we have to, to get into some, some, uh, a little bit technical Greek grammar. In the English, it looks rather simple. It looks like he's given us his spirit. How do we know that we abide in him because he's given us his spirit? Well, if giving the, the, the he gave me the spirit and gave you the spirit at the instant of salvation. But that isn't how we know we abide because he's using abide now in a more te- technical sense of almost maturity, where the believer is spending more of his time abiding and loving. But you got the Spirit when you were saved, not when you hit maturity. So it's it's confusing, it's difficult. So when you look at the Greek, though, it, it it's even more interesting. We know by this that he abides in us by the Spirit he has given us. And what we have in the in the Greek here, the main verb is is a perfect active indicative of didomi. Now I'm going to try to make this as simple as possible, but it's it's really it's really fun. The given here is a perfect active indicative. The perfect emphasizes present reality so he gave it in the past we're emphasizing the present present reality of it here active voice means the subject performs the action so god gave the spirit and the indicative mood is the mood of reality he gave the spirit in the past now he has given the spirit to us to us is a dative case And it's a dative of advantage, meaning he gave the Spirit to us for our advantage or for our benefit. 
But that's when we get past the simple Greek here. Because it doesn't, it doesn't just say of the Spirit. This is where I have problems with translators. A phrase like this, of the Spirit, of Him, whenever you have the, that, that preposition of, that indicates a genitive construction. And too often, a genitive construction is just rather superficially translated as of something or, you know, let's say, uh, Peter's confession. And the apostrophe, or the confession of Peter, where the apostrophe S indicates genitive. But there are at least 35 different meanings to the genitive. Now you don't get those meanings from the, from the grammar itself. You have to look at the context and think about, well, what exactly does it mean of the Spirit? Well, then you have something else that's going on here. And that is that it's not simply of the Spirit in the Greek. You have a preposition in front of it, the preposition ek, which is usually the preposition indicating, indicating source or, or separation. Separation. Ek, and ek always takes, the preposition always takes a genitive case. Okay, so would this be separation from the, our, our source, from the source of the Spirit? Well, that kind of makes sense. But there are five different shades of meaning to an ek plus the genitive. So I looked at this and I said, well, how do I determine which it is? Because you see what happens, I just had a situation like this recently where I was dealing with a, a, a pastor who doesn't know Greek, and he's looking at it, and he's gotten off into some kind of a weird, weird doctrine. And I, it was like, okay, where did he get this? And he said, okay, he took this verb, and the verb, and the, he said, he claimed, although I can't find support for this, that the verb means, has three different meanings listed in, in the Greek dictionary. And he said, well, I like number three. No, whoa, that's not how you do it. You don't say, okay, it could be A, B, or C. Which one do I like? You have to determine by usage and compare and contrast context. So I'm looking at this phrase here in the Greek, and I thought, ek to pneumatos. Boy, that's an odd construction. I wonder how many times that phrase is used in the New Testament or by John, and just exactly what does John mean by ek to pneumatos? Because if it's simple genitive of the Spirit, you wouldn't throw the preposition in there. So I ran a little quick search on my computer and discovered that John uses this same phrase one other place. We just studied it a couple of weeks ago in 1 John 3, 24. And it's almost an identical statement. It says, and the one who keeps his commandments abides in him and he in him. And we know by this that he abides in us. By the Spirit whom He has given us. Now this is a slightly different construction. And it's, it's very similar in the Greek to the construction we have in verse 13, but the differences are important. And in 324, uh, in verse 24, we know from the Spirit or by the Spirit whom He gave to us. In other words, it is the Spirit. You have this 
you have a, a relative pronoun right here who tells us that it is the spirit that's given. This relative pronoun is the subject of the of the aorist tense verb here. That's the other difference. See in, in verse four in, in verse thirteen, the has given here in the English it looks like it's the same, but in verse thirteen it's a perfect tense verb indicating the present reality of a past action, and the has given in verse 24 of 1 John is an aorist tense indicating just simple past. But the subject of the has given in verse 413 is he. He has given to us. And in the, in the, in verse 24, the subject of the verb is the relative pronoun whom, which refers to spirit. So the spirit is what's given to us in, in verse 24, but something else is given to us in verse 13. See, he gave us something. The something isn't spelled out in verse 13. What we have is a genitive clause. Now, have you noticed anything else in this verse? Look at verse 24. It says, by the Spirit. That's means, by means of the Spirit. It's not of the Spirit, but yet it's still ectunumatos. It is the same preposition, the same genitive construction. You see, of the four different what, different meanings to ek, one of the uh, more uh, rare or less common emphasis is means. And the, the the translator nails it in verse 24. It is means here. The context indicates that it is. How do you know that you abide? It's by means of the Spirit. It's the Spirit. By means of the filling of the Spirit. That's how you know uh, that he's been given to us. But it's, an, it's not your normal N plus the dative, which is how you normally express means. It's, it's something a little different. But when he got down to chapter 4, verse 13, he takes the same construction, the same phrase, the same context, and he translates it with this nebulous, meaningless of the Spirit. So 1 John 4, 13 should be translated... By this we know that we abide in him and he in us. How do you know if you're abiding in him and he in us? Because he has given something to us by his spirit. What did he give to us? What he gave to us is 1 John 4.12. Love. The fruit of the spirit to love one another. So how do we know that we're abiding in him and he in us? He just stated it in the previous verse. It's by love for one another, which is produced by God the Holy Spirit. So the ek plus the genitive in verse 13 is actually an expression of means that it is by means of the spirit that love is produced. Now, verse 12 and verse 13 talk about love. Now, I've already gone back and I've tied in 1 John 3:16, where we saw that by this we know love, that Christ died as a substitute for us. And we saw in our previous study, in verse 9 of this chapter, of chapter 4, in this the love of God was manifested or revealed to us that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world that we might live through him. So how do we know love? We know love by looking at the cross. So now we have two verses that talk about love, and then he's going to wrap that third strand back in as he continues to weave his theme. Verse 14 doesn't even mention love. It doesn't mention abiding. It picks up a totally different subject. 
it picks up salvation. It goes right back to the cross and reminds us of what took place at the cross as the foundation for our understanding what love is. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world. Now, I'm going to make a point this morning that I don't think anybody else has ever made on this verse. I'm not omniscient, so I really can't make that kind of statement, but I've never run across it because I think that this verse, understood in context, is a strong verse for unlimited atonement. Because what, what we're talking about here is, is loving one another, and that love for one another is a love that doesn't take into account sin, it doesn't take into account the failures of the person we love, and so when John says he sent the Son as Savior of the world. He is reminding us of God's love for fallen, undeserving man. Not a special kind of love for, in limited atonement, which is only for those who, who, who believe, and they believe because I give that faith to them. See, that's Calvinism. I told you we'd come right back to the tulip again. This is called the five points of Calvinism, and this is the little acronym that we memorize in order to remember the five points of Calvinism. Now, remember, John Calvin was the French-Swiss reformer. He led the French-Swiss branch of the Reformation. Reformation was started by Martin Luther in Germany on October 31st, 1517, when he nailed the 95 theses or debating points on the wall of the church at Wittenberg. And Calvin came along. He was younger than Luther. He came along, and in the 1630s, he has become saved. He was trained as a lawyer in, in France, and he becomes saved, and he takes all of his brilliant mind and legal skills to the study of Scripture. And he begins to organize and systematize Scripture, and he founds the, what's called the French-Swiss branch of the Reformation. That's in the 1530s to 1540s. He dies, I think, in the 1560s. Well, some 40 or 50 years later, his followers have sort of hardened their theology, and uh, there's a reaction that sets in. And the reaction that sets in in, in Holland, uh, those folks were called the Remonstrants. That's spelled R-E-M-O-N-S-T-R-A-N-N-D-T-S, the Remonstrants, because they're, they're, they're reacting to, to Calvin. And they have five views. One is that every man is born neutral. Now, this doesn't make an acronym, so it doesn't work, but... Uh, Everybody's born neutral. You're born just like Adam was created. You can choose to sin or not sin, and theoretically, technically, any of us could be perfect. Okay? And they taught, secondly, that that God chose everybody. We'll put CE here for conditional election. God chose everybody because of what they would they would do. See, that's why we have to be careful in the way we articulate election. Because they had the idea that God knew who would be who would be righteous and who wouldn't, and He chose people on that basis. So the ultimate issue in salvation is what we do. Then they said that because of that, Christ really died for everybody, and that was unlimited, or excuse me, UA unlimited atonement. And then they had a resistible grace. You could resist grace. You could resist the grace of God, 
um, as God was, as the Holy Spirit is uh, teaching. And there are aspects to some of this that, that's not bad, but it's the way they put it together in a system. And then, of course, you could um, you could lose your salvation. That's what they taught. You could lose your salvation because if you believed, then the next day you did, and then you'd lose your salvation. So the Calvinists came along, and they, they countered that. So hardcore five-point hyper-Calvinism is really a reaction to what became known as Arminianism. This was taught by a, by a um, theology professor named uh, James Arminius. And so the tulip is a point-by-point reaction to Arminianism. The T stands for total depravity, ever, or to, as it's developed total inability. There's nothing you can do to be saved. You can't even be positive at God consciousness. Unconditional election. You don't do anything. God just says, there are some I'm going to elect, others I'm not. And in its most extreme form, it's a double, ele- double election. I'm going to elect some to salvation, the rest I'm electing to hell. That's in hyper, or in a superlapsarianism. Or hyper-Calvinism. Limited atonement. I'm only going to die for the, the few I chose. Irresistible grace. I'm going to operate on them in such a way that they can't resist me. There's no volition involved. I'm going to choose you to be saved, and now I'm going to, I'm going to uh, send the Holy Spirit. And he's going to convince you, and you can't resist him or go any other way. That's irresistible grace. And then perseverance. Those who are truly saved like this are going to produce uh, good works. So that's um, that's the issue in Calvinism, and that's called five-point Calvinism because there are five points here. Now, sometimes you'll hear people talk about four-point Calvinism, and in four-point Calvinism, you'll have some uh, a Calvinist who believes in total depravity, unconditional election, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. But they'll believe in unlimited atonement. Now, Lewis Perry Chafer, who founded Dallas Seminary, was what's considered a four-point Calvinist. But he was really, he didn't have a hardcore view on perseverance. And so there were some other differences there. But when you hear people talk about four-point Calvinism versus five-point Calvinism, what they're talking about is whether or not they believe in unlimited atonement. Now, John refers to unlimited atonement here in verse 14, where it says, We have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son as the Savior of the world. He sent the Son to die, die on the cross for everyone. So, unlimited atonement means, point number one, unlimited atonement means unlimited in its extent. Jesus Christ died for every single human being that lives on planet Earth. Second point. Atonement is a summary term for all of Christ's work on the cross, for his redemptive work, his propitiatory work, his work of reconciliation. Atonement covers the everything he did on, on the cross, and it's based on the Hebrew concept expressed in the Day of Atonement, and we just recently studied that, where kafar means to cleanse or to purify. Older, uh, older, older students have said it meant to cover, but recent scholarship on the word indicates it has uh, more the sense of complete cleansing or purification as what happens at, at the point of salvation. 
and this is indicated by one indication is that just about everywhere the word is translated by the Greek in the Septuagint, it's translated by the Greek word katharizo, which is the same word we have in 1 John 1 9 for cleansing. It is position, it represents positional cleansing. Uh, point number three, atonement is substitutionary. We have verses like many verses, uh, for example, Romans 5 5, but God demonstrates his own love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died not just for us. See, that's a little fuzzy. But as a substitute for us, it's the Greek preposition huper, H-U-P-E-R, huper plus the genitive. And it means substitution instead of, in place of. Now, the problem here is is that unlimited atonement has really been taught two ways. There's what I will call classic Unlimited atonement. Classic unlimited atonement says, and this has a, was taught by a French theologian by the name of Amiro. Moses Amiro. Well, I think this was a T. Amiro. And it became known as Amiraldianism. Boy, aren't you guys getting some fun new words today? Amiraldianism. And this was another way of putting it, it's potential. Substitution. I can't spell this morning. Substitution. Potential. How is it potentially substitute? If we go out to eat, if we go out to eat and we sit down and we have lunch and we buy a couple of burgers and fries and we sit down and I say, okay, I'm going to pay the bill. Now, did I really pay your bill or not? Do I potentially pay your bill? If you say, no, 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 I won't accept it, I can pay it also, then I really didn't pay your bill. But if I paid your bill, you can't come along and say, okay, now I'm going to pay the bill. See, this is the real issue here in substitution. Is it potential or is it real? Now, almost every theologian you read holds to a classic view of unlimited atonement as potential. And that means that what they'll say is Christ died for you, but if you reject it, then when you, when the unbeliever goes to the lake of fire, they're going to pay the penalty for their sins in the lake of fire because they rejected Christ's payment. It was only made potentially. It would have been theirs if they had accepted it, but they didn't accept it, so now somebody's got, now they've got to pay for it. But see, that causes tremendous problems with the concept of substitution because there's no such thing as potential substitution or, or another word that's used is hypothetical or theoretical substitution. Because ultimately, when the unbeliever ends up in the lake of fire, and you go to him and you say, why are you in the lake of fire? What's he going to say? I'm paying for my sins. Well, if you're paying for your sins now, then Christ didn't pay for them on the cross. And if Christ didn't pay the sins for the unbeliever on the cross, then that's limited atonement, isn't it? You've just backdoored your way right back into limited atonement. And that's one of the basic problems with the classic formulation. Now, don't go running out of here and say, well, that means that people who believe in that classic form of unlimited atonement are really hyper-Calvinists. No, 
Lewisbury Chafer believed Christ died for everybody, but there's a theological loophole in this articulation, and that's all we're pointing out. We do not make the go jump to the false conclusion that if you believe in hypothetical or potential uh, atonement, that that you really a closet limited atonement guy. No, that's not true. Don't. And I've had I've had some people try to say that, but that's that's not being fair to. Uh, people who hold to this position. I believe that it is a real substitution and that at the, at the great, at the, uh, excuse me, at the, uh, yes, at the great white throne judgment, the issue is not sin because sin was actually paid for. The issue is human good and is your righteousness good enough to meet the standard of Christ's perfect righteousness. And if it's not good enough to meet that standard, then you're sent to the lake of fire, not because of your sin, but because you're not good enough to get into heaven. And consequently, that's because you're a sinner, but not for your personal sin. Now, let's look at some verses, just very briefly, a couple of verses that you can write down and look at later. Uh, John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. And um, Acts 10.43, of him all the prophets bear witness that through his name everyone who believes in him uh, receives forgiveness of sin. Emphasis on everyone, who anyone who can. It's a the believe there is in the subjunctive mood, so anyone has that option. 2 Corinthians 5.14 and following. For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all. Therefore all died. Christ died for all. And he died for all, that they who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. And then we skip down to verse 19, 2 Corinthians 5.19, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not just the elect. Then you have 1 John 2.2, 2, where we read, He himself is the propitiation for our sins, that's believers, or in context, it's actually the apostles, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. And then in 1 Timothy 2.6, He gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony born at the proper time, a ransom for all, and then in 1 Timothy 4.10, For it is for this we labor and strive, because we have fixed our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. So those verses nail down that Christ died for those, and there's some I didn't look at, for example, in uh, 2 Peter chapter 2, that he died uh, for those, for the false teachers who deny the one who, who even deny the one who bought them. These are all passages that indicate Jesus Christ died not just for believers, but also uh, was a substitute for those who were unbelievers. Well, next time we'll come back and we'll look at the next two or three verses and see how love is perfected and how abiding affects our spiritual advance with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you again for this time to look at your word this morning, to be challenged by it. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who is uh, not sure of their salvation, uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. 
Scripture says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Jesus died on the cross as a substitute for you, as we have seen. And all you have to do is to believe that he did that. It's not based on how good you are. It's not based on how bad you've been or how bad you uh, could have been. It's not based on any moral uh, persuasion with God. It's not based on church attendance. It's not based on any human factor. Simply faith alone in Christ alone. Father, we thank you for what we have studied today. Challenge us with this teaching that we might press on to spiritual maturity. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.